online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Julia Harding, MW, is my guest, lead editor on the Oxford Companion to Wine. Its latest edition, the fifth, has just been published. We'll talk about what's new, from grape varieties to countries and winemaking methods and how she and her team approach a million words on wine. For anyone who questions whether much can really change in the world of wine, there are 272 substantive new entries in the newly released Oxford Companion to Wine, the fifth edition of this hardback epic Uh, The OCW, as it's affectionately known, is a Bible for those of us who've ever taken a wine exam. Uh, It's my go-to reference resource when I'm writing, but it's so much more than a textbook. It's a labour of love extending to more than a million words, and it's also a coffee table tome, uh, the perfect place to uh, spend a rainy day. Uh, Its first editor was Jancis Robinson, OBE, MW, and she is still very much involved. But fellow Master of Wine, Julia Harding, is now the lead editor, and I'm delighted to say that she joins me now. Julia, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you about this, as I said, epic. Let's begin with a little bit of history. The first edition came out in 1994. I've worked out that I possess the third, fourth, and now fifth editions. The first edition was uh, before you were involved. Tell us, how did it come about? As you say, I wasn't involved in the first, and in fact, not in the second either. But um, I did talk to Jancis about it, and she explained that Oxford University Press commissioned, first commissioned the book um, in as part of their series called Oxford, Oxford Companion 2. So they have Oxford Companion to English literature, to food, to all sorts of things. Um, but they first commissioned one on wine in 1988. And at the time, I remember, and Jansa said, it, she really thought wine had made it. Now it was in Oxford Companion 2 wine. Um, and it was a very daunting prospect for her because it, it was starting from scratch. Working on a new edition is is much less it, it's demanding, but it's not as demanding as starting with 800 blank pages, which is what chances did. And in fact, more to the point, there was no email. All of the contributors sent in their uh, texts and ideas either via fax or post on paper and in fact somebody at um, Oxford University Press transcribed all of the material that came in so that Janice's could work on it on um, she didn't tell me what she had but it was some sort of rudimentary word processing thing Uh, so can you imagine trying to do this now without email I I certainly can't so Janice's describes it as her fourth child and I'm not really surprised yeah that's a Herculean 
task. I mean, it still is, to be honest. You have a rather cute story about your connection with it because you actually went and bought either, I don't know whether it was the first or the second edition, um, and got Jancis to sign it in a bookshop, didn't you? That's right, yes. Yeah. So um, this was in 1999 when the second edition came out and I was studying for my WSET diploma. I had a copy of the first edition and I gathered that Chances was going to be in my local bookshop in Bristol. So I got a ticket and went down there and uh, got her to sign my copy and never in a million years dreamed that I would end up editing a few editions later. Yeah, I bet. That's uh, a lovely story. And of course, I doubt you imagined for one moment you'd uh, even necessarily meet her again, let alone work as closely as you you do now, because at chancesrobinson.com, you're, you're uh, pretty much joined at the hip, aren't you? Yes. The, I mean, the, the other funny story is that um, I did, in fact, write to Jancis and say, could I meet you? I'd really love to work for you. And very graciously, she said yes. So I went from Bristol to London and we had a time chatting. I was explaining that I was a book editor and I really wanted to get into editing wine books rather than languages and linguistics, which I did before, and that I was studying for my diploma. And um, as I was leaving, I said, you know, actually, I'd really like to work for you. And she said, oh, I'm never going to employ anybody. I'm a control freak. And it took me seven years from that day to actually persuade Jancis she might employ me. And uh, um, I, I think that just shows something of my cheek, but also my determination that I would work with Jancis one day. Yeah. And it's also a measure of... Um of Jancis too, that she, she's famous for uh, replying to, to emails. I don't know how she does it, but you, you never meet anyone who, who doesn't talk about how um, incredibly active and incredibly um, p- polite she is in, in responding to people. Exactly. And very quick. Amazing. It's amazing. As is what you do with the uh, OCW. Uh, so Jancis has, to an extent, um, handed over the reins to you and to your colleague, uh, Tara. But um, she still has a very significant presence in this, doesn't she? Yes, she does. To start with, there's all of the foundations and all of the entries that were already there when we started work on this edition. And although entries are revised, they often have vestiges of earlier versions. Um, but for, particularly for this edition, Jancis was, uh, really had two, two particular roles. One was she, she was in charge of um, about 10% of the text, certain topics, um, and if, everything to do with wine and the consumer, um, also tasting, um, and a, a topic that we call people, producers, and brands. And uh, so she was in charge of editing all of those uh, sections but more importantly, to be giving me the confidence to, to take on the role of lead editor, which, which, was, which was a huge sense of responsibility. I bet it is. Uh, just explain uh, to those who aren't familiar with the worlds of, uh, of writing and, and publishing uh, exactly what um, a lead editor does. Well, one of the things I had to do was to take a look at the entire book. So we have um, the publisher sends us a list of entries from the previous edition and including who was the contributor to that entry if if there was a contributor some of the some of the entries are written by the editors many of them are written with contributors and editors together and so we have to go through that entire list and consider whether 
we think it needs updating, which it probably does, um, whether we send it to the previous contributor or if for some reason it needs a new one, uh, whether we need a new entry on certain topics that are not in that original list and whether even we should delete something. And generally, uh, if we did delete anything, it was because to make space for a new material because we had a, a limit from the publisher on the extra, I think we had an extra 60,000 words allowance. So we couldn't go over that. Um, I'll give you an example of one entry that was uh, deleted was our coffee houses, an institution in London that doesn't really relate to wine. And I think Jancis would confess that at the first edition, she was so worried about not having enough words. She put in a few more entries, such as coffee houses, that might then later get uh, removed in fact, for the, I think it was for the fourth edition, might have been the third, all of the spirits entries had to be taken out to make room for more wine material. So we have this list, we go through it, and um, at that point, we send out the previous edition's entries to the contributors who we feel should look at them again and say to them, would you like to update this? Some of them may say, no, sorry, I am not, can't do that anymore. Most of them say, yes, we'll do that. But you have a, it's a very complex program because you have two years uh, to work on the revisions and you can't do them all at once you have to spread them out and you try to do the ones that you think will uh, need updating as late as possible so for example we had a new entry on blockchain and nfts so we wanted to leave that as late as possible to make sure it was really up to date because if you'd written it two years ago it would be more out of date than something uh, maybe a historical entry so there's a, a whole logistical process involving sending out entries, getting entries back, and the filing system is, uh, is is quite scary because you've got to make sure you know when they came back, when they went out, when they're due back. So it's a, it's a, a myriad deadlines and chasing people sometimes. The, mm. the actual logistics of being lead editor is, involves all of that but also making final decisions on uh, whether we have a new entry about something. We'll discuss that. I might discuss it with Jancis or, as you mentioned, Tara, Tara Thomas, who um, joined us this year um, as the editor for all of the geographical entries and did a fantastic job of that. But uh, she was new to the project. So, again, I was really making sure that she was familiar with the way we worked and fitting in with Jancis and myself. It's very interesting you mention uh, coffee houses and, and things you were taking out because one of the things that people don't necessarily always think about when they think about the role of an editor is that you are deciding what should not be included, sometimes almost as much as you're deciding what should be included, aren't you? Exactly. And particularly when there's a when it's a printed book and you have a limit on the number of words and the number of pages, that becomes even more critical. Yeah, and paper is... I think, really expensive now as well, isn't it? And the books are heavy. I think it's about yeah. 3.2 kilos or something like that. Yes, there were a few jokes because Jancis has, has really done so much on bottle weight, which um, <laughs> I was at the Wine Society tasting just last week and, and the bottle weight was on every bottle. And that is in very large part to her sort of nagging, for want of a better word, uh, on the issue. But uh, there were a few jokes about um, the weight of the uh, OCW. But of course, um, <laughs> you can't really do anything about that, can you? No, no, unfortunately not. I mean, I think they probably try to do the thinner paper as possible without having any show through from one side to the other. But um, it is quite difficult. 
Yeah, let's talk about what's new. So there are 272 substantive new entries, and every single one, as you mentioned, from the fourth edition published in 2015, was reviewed to see whether it needed updating. You say, I think, in a piece that you wrote for the website, that a rough estimate suggests around 65% of the entries from the last edition uh, needed updating. I was astonished that that much can change. Yes, I mean, I, and you're probably surprised that it took us two years also to update everything. But to go back to your question of the new entries first, so right from the day the previous edition, the fourth edition, went to press, uh, I started a file with possible updates. And so for, in this case, eight years, I've kept a file of everything I've come across, heard about, somebody's told me about, or I've read that suggests maybe we need a new entry uh, in the book. I'll check, see what we've got in the book, see whether I think we need something. And that's part of the, the process of, of, of new entries. In terms of the revisions, I mean, some of them do come from, are instigated by the contributors who, as top experts in their fields, are better equipped to revise entries than I would be, for example. So, while I'm, I oversee and edit all of the entries on viticulture and, and enology, I'm neither a viticulturist nor an enologist. So uh, I will question and edit anything I get back. But these are experts who know exactly what's going on in their fields, uh, practitioners as well, obviously, not just academics. So there's a lot of different things that have been revised. I would say that a lot of the changes in terms of the revisions, a lot of them are related to climate change and responses to climate change. So that might be within the viticulture sections in terms of where vineyards are planted. In the regional sections, that might be going up to higher altitudes. That might be different grape varieties. So that, and all the all the even the all the climate related entries need to be thoroughly revised, which they were by um, Greg Jones, who's, who's, again, an expert in this field. But we find that with having experts, regional experts, not just people who know all about their country, but they might know about their specific region, they can see very clearly how things have changed, particularly to do with climate, not not exclusively. Also, people's creativity, what winemaking, pe- what, what winemaking changes, what viticulture changes, developments in the field, again, sometimes as a result of climate change, but not necessarily. Sometimes somebody just works out how to do something better. We need to revise that. But also, just um, let me give you another example from the areas that Jancis was covered. Celebrity wine. There probably wasn't much focus on celebrity wine 10 years ago, and now mm. it's a thing. We write about uh, a tasting term glue glue, you know, a gluggable wine. People didn't use that before, and unicorn wine. All sorts of things that are that do change. They're they're not just physical changes; they're also trends in wine. In t- in terms of viticulture, it might be to do with diseases. Um, so the expansion of a problem. There's uh, in the U.S. There's something called a brown marmorated stink bug, which wasn't so much of a problem ten years ago, but it's increasing. Something like uh, the carbon footprint of wine. That wasn't really talked about so much 10 years ago, not not widely in the wine world. It, experts who were thinking about these things long before we wrote the book uh, were, but not generally in the wine world. Another example would be regenerative viticulture. That's 
a more recent discussion, even if it was around before, but under different terminology. Then in winemaking, there's a technique called stabulation, which is to do with um, getting more flavour in, particularly in rosé wines. And it's to do with leaving the juice with the uh, flesh of the grape at a cold temperature before it ferments, not the skins, but the flesh to increase the flavour. And that's a technique that's been around, but it's come back into fashion. All sorts of things that have been really discovered as effective. Geotextiles, a sort of textile material used to protect vines in cold weather. So there's a lot of things that people have, have discovered, and there's things that are happening. So we would have mentioned wildfires in previous entries, but only under their geographical entry. Now we have an entry on wildfires, and the same way we have an entry on smoke taint, It just wasn't a problem 10 years ago in this way that it is now. So there's a huge number of things that have changed that are trends or that are changes in the world. And as well as these are reflected then in the geographical entries because people are doing different things, planting in different places. So it really is quite remarkable. And then there's all the packaging changes, the trends towards, as you you mentioned, the glass weight and alternative packaging. So we have a new entry on paper bottles the entry on kegs is vastly expand, expanded. Um, all of the tech, all of the statistics that we have in the grape variety entries need to be updated. It's it's um, it's really uh, an endless job. Uh, I don't know whether mm-hmm. everybody listening will have heard the phrase "painting the fourth road bridge," but it's like mm-hmm. once you start at the beginning, you get to the end, and then you have to go back to the beginning again. Well, you really do. Uh, literally with that file don't you i was uh, astonished when i i read that you basically you send it off to print and then you start that file pretty much that day don't you you do and it's a little bit depressing because you think oh I bet. yeah, yeah I, I can imagine i mean uh, just because it is uh well uh, you, you, like a child as, as jancis has, has said to you really isn't it this never leaves you that's that's right i mean they there is a moment when you hand over the text of the new edition to the publisher for the first time, and that is a moment to breathe a deep sigh of relief, which was, for our, for this edition, it was the 1st of August last year. But then there's lots more stages where you asked about the process. So then the text comes back to us for us to check all the cross-references. Then it goes back to the typesetter again. Uh, then we have it back again for the first proofs, where, where again we can make changes but not two bigger, big changes, and then we get the second proofs. Um, so th- there's moments, every time you send one stage back to the publisher, you, you do breathe a sigh of relief. But the biggest sigh comes on publication day, which was the 14th of September. Yeah. And what does it feel like to see it? Because I know uh, uh, I've never written a book, but I know people who have who say that that when it drops through, and this is, by the way, not normally something on the scale of the OCW, but when this book drops through the letterbox and they open the packaging, there's this moment of just such joy. Uh, Is that something uh, you feel when you see the finished version in front of you? Oh, absolutely. When the preview copies arrived at the beginning of September, uh, and I I was just about to go away, but I couldn't, I had to delay and tear open the box. Um, I knew what the cover was going to look like, but I hadn't seen the finished version. And just to open the pages and see the physical proof of all that work, ready to go, ready to go out and meet the world, it's a, it's a great moment. And in fact, anybody will tell you that I'm not a fan of social media. And I, I do have an Instagram account, but I've only ever posted on it once. 
Uh, and but when I opened this box, uh, my partner uh, took a photograph of me and uh, I uploaded the photo just because I was so happy to see this book in the flesh. Ah, oh, that's lovely. You've been at pains to point out that this is very much a team effort. You're the lead editor, but you have a, an enormous team of contributors, 267, I think. How do you decide who is contributing? Well, working with um, both Jancis and Tara, we have a very big pool of people we know and contacts. And if we don't have people we already know, we research and we ask people we do know if they know somebody, if there's a particular field that we're looking for. So, for example, uh, the blockchain entry, we had to go through people we knew who might be able to recommend somebody to write that entry. Um, but, but we always start off giving the previous contributor an opportunity to review the text um, unless they're not working anymore or unless even more sadly they've died because, you know, this book's been going quite a long while and not everybody who started working on the book can, can continue to work on it. But we're always looking for people who are very up to date with what they're doing. And that might come from recommendation or people we've met or research online. Um, it's it's a big process to get the right people. And sometimes we'll ask a contributor and they'll say, oh, well, I think you'd be better off using this person because they're doing what I'm doing or what I have been doing. But they're taking it a step further or they're younger or any, any of those reasons. And we always want to make sure that we have got very solid contributors not somebody who who's just been recommended, but so we'll research, we'll look into what they write, um, and what we I don't know what we would do without the internet. Yeah, it's and email you mentioned uh, yes. as well, but but yet we did have to manage without that before. So uh, and and the OCW existed as you said because we talked about its history. But um, yes, this is this is I suppose a, a really interesting area to talk about because. As any journalist uh, or editor uh, knows, the, the internet is an amazing resource and it's also a place where you can go quite badly wrong. So I guess you're also having to be incredibly careful with what's on the internet uh, at the same time, aren't you? Yes. I, I mean, I, I, maybe I've given them slightly the wrong impression. We're not taking our information from the internet. We're purely using it to read perhaps what one of our possible contributors might have written or um, we're not actually taking information from the internet. No. That, I think that would be too risky, and that's why we're that's why we're editors. We're editing what we find and deciding whether it's correct, up to date, and accurate. Yes, and the internet can be useful for extensive cross referencing, of course, uh, uh, as well in, in in journalistic terms. But yes, I, I take the point. You're certainly not um, uh, getting stuff off, you know, Wikipedia. I wouldn't for a moment imagine that that uh, uh, would be what uh, found its way into um, uh, the uh, uh, OCW. The, uh, for example, if you were looking for somebody to for, to write a new entry, I give a, a geographical example: uh, Estonia then we'd be look to see who had been writing about Estonia, who's making wine in Estonia. That's the sort of research we'd be doing. And then trying to approach somebody who, who might be able to help us with that entry. That brings us neatly on to some of the country-specific uh, new entries, because uh, we've got Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Norway warranting uh, new entries, I believe, in this, the fifth edition. It will surprise many people listening that wine is produced in uh, in those countries. Yes, and uh, Norway, in fact, did have an entry in the last edition, but it was two sentences. 
and now it's been significantly extended. They are countries that are benefiting from uh, climate change. Um, warming has allowed people to push north in terms of vineyards. They, some of them have been growing uh, grapes for probably sort of around maybe 20 years, some of them, often originally in greenhouses. And many of those countries, Estonia is a good example, uh, mainly made fruit wine before they found that either that it was warm enough or they could find the right site to, to plant, or indeed they got the right grape varieties, ones that were more cold resistant or able to ripen uh, um, even in cooler climates. So, for example, a variety called Solaris is, is popular in those more northerly regions. And that's another that's another new entry in the book, Solaris. So they, things are, are so interrelated uh, in this book. But those definitely, those countries, they're not making a huge amount of wine, but they are much more significantly, uh, doing so more significantly than they were 10 years ago. And there are also entries for Gabon, Togo, and Uganda, among yes. 15 other African countries. That slightly surprised me as well. Yes, indeed. They are very small industries, but they are making and bottling and commercially selling wine, which some of the, you know, Gabon, I didn't actually know anybody made wine in Gabon. They're small, but it's again, it's an indication of how, in the case, not really climate change, but it's the, uh, the way of humans to want to explore and expand and develop and be creative in a way that maybe somebody hadn't been before in that place. So again, small, but significant. And new grape varieties as well. Uh, we've got, um, I haven't heard of this one, I confess, Kidanista, um, Vidiano. Um, I don't think I've heard of that either. I have heard of Liliarela, but only uh, recently. And excuse me if I've not pronounced those um, uh, correctly, because they are um, very much, um, they're, they're, they're new. <laughs> so what's your threshold for including these new varieties, because there is another tome, of course, uh, wine grapes that uh, deals with this. And you could um, just fill the book with with grape varieties if you weren't careful, I guess. That's true. And I think the fact that both Jancis and I were co-authors with uh, Dr. José Vuillemos on wine grapes has really helped us in this because we knew this wasn't another wine grapes book. And the, the criterion for inclusion in wine grapes was that the uh, variety had to be made, bottled and sold commercially, even if only by one producer. Now, clearly we couldn't do that in this book, as you say, but what we have done is included ones that we think are significant enough or are becoming more popular. So Kidonitsa, for example, is not a new variety in itself. It's grown in, mainly in the Peloponnese in Greece, um, but it's being planted by more people. The same with Vidiano, uh, which probably comes from Crete, but is also being planted more widely as people have rediscovered its potential. Liliorila um, is included uh, because it's one of the varieties that the Bordeaux region have allowed uh, to be used as, in an experimental way, again, because of uh, climate change. So there are various different reasons. The main the criterion here is that a great variety has become more significant it's not just that it exists and somebody's making it. We, we did have to limit it. But one thing that's really important to note is that, um, so Wine Grapes came out in 2012, which meant we finished writing it in 2011. And since then, there's been continuing research by 
Jose Buyemos, among others, in DNA testing. And so, in fact, the Oxford Companion has some more up-to-date information on parentage of varieties, relationships between varieties, than we've been able to put in wine grapes. We will be updating it when we get to another edition, which uh, we haven't actually got planned yet, but clearly it needs it. So there's that, even though there are fewer varieties in the companion, some of the information is a little bit more up to date. And we had to update all the statistics about how much was planted in which country. Yes, it's not just one child. It's like having another child with <laughs> wine grapes, isn't it? Yes. Um, you say it was noticeable that there were far more new entries in viticulture than in enology. Um, why might that be? Well, I, I thought quite hard about this because I didn't really notice it until somebody asked me about the new entries. And I can only see it as um, most of the environmental changes that we're responding to in the world of wine need to be dealt with in the vineyard rather than in the uh, winery. And there isn't, while you can finesse and improve on equipment in the winery, and we write, we revise those so that, for example, the entry on destemmer crusher is updated because there's better equipment available. They're still being used as it was in the last edition. So a lot of the techniques in the in the winery, I think, are being improved, but some of them are even being dropped. You know, people not using sulfites or preferring to not to add cultured yeast. So there's some techniques in the in the winery that are being dropped to go back to a more traditional way of doing things whereas i think in uh, in the vineyard the drive to deal with all of the issues that are related to climate change increasing disease uh, disease pressure fungal diseases that are also related to climate change and also just trying to include in, improve um, wine quality happen in the vineyard so i think that's where a lot more attention is given and where new, more new things are happening that, uh, that's my that's my hunch. Yes, it's a, a, a decent hunch, I think. It makes a lot of sense. Um, there is a kind of an extent, as I mentioned in the introduction, to which um, the OCW um, is a kind of Bible. Uh, for uh, you, you mentioned you did your diploma, obviously, before your MW. Um, I haven't done the MW, uh, but I have done the diploma. And I, I found myself using the OCW a lot, uh, but I, then I do for my writing as well. It's, it's, it's one of my sort of fact-checking processes, or if I just need to shine a light on something that I don't feel I know enough about. But um, I know from my own days as a, a BBC editor that it's not always possible to take a definitive stance on an issue. Sometimes, you know, it can be very divisive or two things can be true as well. Um, how do you approach that? That's a very good question. Well, I think if there are two views or if there are advantages and disadvantages to certain things, then we try to present both sides. So, for example, uh, in the entry on cover crops, that will explain the benefits and also any disadvantages and which particular types of cover crop are better in this, which sort of environment, what sort of soil. So we do try to show both sides to an argument. Um, and think we also have updated as much as possible all of the bibliographical references. Um, so in more technical entries, but not exclusively those, we, we have uh, references at the end of the entry for further reading or to uh, for people to look up something that we have referred to in the entry. And so we would 
we hope that a reader who's really interested and wants to know more can go to those references and look them up. And it's, it is just a question of trying to make sure that we don't take one stance. But in some entries, I think terroir is a good example, which is a very divisive, can be very divisive. We make mm. it quite clear that our approach generally in the book is to think of terroir as uh, physical environmental influences on wine. But we do also say that other people would include quite reasonably the human involvement. And we would give a mention of somebody who's written about it from that point of view, and that would be included in the references. So if we have taken a particular stance, we'll try and make that obvious. We won't try to let bias just go through. We'll say this is what the way we see it, um, but this is the other point of view. Yes. And I, I think you, you're, I mentioned you were kind of uh, jokingly that you're joined at the hip uh, <laughs> earlier, but uh, but actually you do seem to have a very similar um, approach to things uh, to Jancis. I think that's true. I mean, probably uh, my personality was want, drawn to working with Jancis because I could see the way she worked and really admired the way she worked right from back the late 90s. Um, and I've worked with Jancis since uh, full time, since 2005. And pr- prior to that, part time. Uh, in fact, when we were working on the third edition of the book, I worked part time uh, exclusively on that rather than on the website. But having, I think, working with somebody for all that time, you do um, pick up on ways of working. And and as I say, because I so admired Chances's methods and approach, if they weren't naturally mine, I, I would try to uh, learn from her. So like, it's, you know, and working on the books together, it's inevitable, I think, that I would be uh, adopting the way Chances works as well. Mm. I noticed that you've included, uh, for the first time, I think, an entry on underwater ageing <laughs> of uh, of wine, and I've just written about this actually for the festive um, edition of Club Analogique. So I was particularly uh, interested to uh, to see that underwater aging uh, is included. Um, why did you choose that out of interest? Because I kept coming across it uh, quite some time ago. I went to a tasting in London with uh, Champagne Drapier, and they were one of the first that I'd come across. And then more and more people were telling me what they were doing. Um, Exton Park in in the UK were doing it. And then I found other people not sparkling wines um, and even somebody who was uh, making making wine underwater, let alone aging it underwater. It's just, again, it's as I, as I mentioned before, it's this process that goes on for all of the intervening years of listening, reading and making a note. And as, as the file gets bigger, you think, oh, yes, that definitely is ready for a new entry. So it's what it's what's happening, what we see, what we hear, what we taste uh, informs that that choice. And and also I found people studying it, uh, analysing the wine. So uh, there was a there's a um, an academic in, in Burgundy who was looking at the anal- analytical differences of, of wine aged underwater and not underwater. So there's somebody I can go to and ask and get not just the story but the facts uh, and the analysis. Yeah. And it's a new area, so that's that bit more challenging. I certainly found it so um, in uh, in my own uh, writing, which is uh, not on the scale of uh, of, of the OCW. Um, I'm curious about how you um, organise yourself um, to uh, take on something like this. Um, you've written that um, you liken it to the to and fro of a very busy parcel depot, um, which is a, a nice a nice picture. Um, how do you go about it? 
Well, at the outset, Jancis, Tara and I know which areas we're responsible for because we, um, in the front of the book, we have got um, all the entries are listed by what we call region or topic. So within a topic, one editor will take that all the entries in that topic or for Tara, she took all of the geographical entries. I did all of the viticulture, vinification, history, packaging, grape varieties, uh, labelling. And so you know at the outset which areas you're responsible for and who worked on them before. And you simply contact, or simply, I say, you know, that's a lot of effort because sometimes people have changed their email addresses. They're no longer working at the same place. But you try to contact previous contributors and it is this process of timing is extremely difficult. That's why I use this analogy of the post office, because you've got things coming and going in both directions that are time sensitive. And then you have to, you can't just get in some response from a contributor and then wait three months and then go back and ask them a question. You've got to be dealing with it while it's still fresh in their minds, because most of people are have very busy full-time jobs and they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart and of their desire to contribute to the learning of wine. Um, so the timing of it is very tricky and you might suddenly get a, a surge of replies and you need to deal with them. And uh, that that's the sort of, um, that's the logistical side of it and keeping records and remembering every time you get an entry back to write down the date it came back. And, um, and there's always a to and fro of questions. So I might get a response from a contributor, but then I'll probably need to raise some questions because I didn't understand something or it didn't make sense to me or um, I want them to go in a slightly different direction or suggest something else that they may not have mentioned. So it's a constant coming and going uh, of all these four and a half thousand entries going around the world, um, which is why I don't know how Jancis did it with our email. Yeah, we keep coming back to that, don't we? Um, it's also a good point you make there, by the way, that I'm assuming, uh, I mean, I'm not obviously uh, asking for anything confidential here, but I'm assuming that, that no one's making themselves particularly wealthy out of doing this. You know, this is a, a lot of contributors uh, working away at this. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be financially viable if, if they were paid enormous amounts of money, I'm guessing. So I assume there's a lot of goodwill here at play. There is an awful lot of goodwill, and uh, we're extremely grateful to the contributors. You know, it's the way of it's considered an academic book, even though I, I believe it has much wider uh, appeal than some academic books that I have worked on in the past. I, I, just to give you an example, when I was editing books on linguistics, I did one called Grammar Inside and Outside the Clause. That didn't have wow. a very big readership, but I think. Uh, the Oxford Companion has a much wider readership, but you, you've given some of the reasons as uh, if you're studying, but also just for wine lovers who want to know a bit more and want to be able to pick up and dip in and out. So I think it's um, fortunately, we're very fortunate because we have fantastic contributors who, who really just want to be part of this. Somebody referred to it as a magnum opus. And uh, my uh, colleague, Richard Hemming, Master of Wine, Richard Hemming, said he thought it was um uh, Jeroboam opus and that's a bit how it feels <laughs> that's very Richard yes um it's it's uh it's true and you're absolutely right I mean yes it's academic but it's um very much at home on a coffee table too isn't it it looks great and it's uh just a, a mine of, of fascinating information and and of course things like maps and things that that, that, that help visually yes and and all the photos uh, we're only allowed uh, 16 photos in the book um, 
to keep the cost down, uh, unfortunately, but all of the photos are new and they're mostly related to the new entries. So there's one, there's a, one that I particularly like, which is bottles covered in barnacles to illustrate the underwater aging. Uh, there's a, a sailing ship, which uh, is an illustration of the entry on alternative uh, transportation of wine. Um, the fact that uh, I knew of somebody who was bringing wine from the peak island of Pico in the Azores to the UK in a sailing boat. So we have a picture of the sailing boat. So all the photos are new, but um, and the maps are, have been all checked and revised. They're not changed particularly, but they're updated and corrected if, if necessary. I think one thing I, I did want to say is some of the revisions are not necessarily uh, informational, but they're more to structural. So if you can imagine a book being built by accretion, so every edition something is added, and it might be added to an existing entry or a new one. But at a certain point, it's a bit like a game of um, Jenga, where you're putting a block of wood on top of a block of wood, and eventually, if you don't do something drastic, it could fall over. And it becomes harder and harder for a reader to use the book. So what we've done in this edition in particular is we've pulled out some entries, particularly in the geographical ones. In the last edition, uh, New Zealand had one entry and you wanted to know about Nelson. You had to read all the way through the New Zealand entry until you found it. But now we have pulled subregions out. There's still a New Zealand entry, which refers you to all the other sub, all the subregions, all the regions. Um, but you can go and look up Nelson. So we try to make it as much as possible a book where people who think, oh, I'd really like to know about X, that they actually find X under that name, even if it just refers them to another entry. So the whole structural side of it is another massive job. And I think it's particularly important in this book where, I mean, I remember when I was um, studying for my diploma, I would just get so caught up. I'd be reading one entry and it would refer me to another entry. And two hours later, I'd think, oh, how did I get here? And that that whole side of it is another big job of, uh, of, of editing. Do the cross-references uh, send you slightly mad? <laughs> More than slightly, yes, they do. Because um, particularly with three editors working on different entries, to try and keep track of who's changed something and whether it's still accurate – and in fact, that, that's why this, this for this edition, um, because it wasn't just uh, Jancis and me working on it, because we had a third editor in Tara, um, in order to be able to check the cross-references, we had a, a second stage after we sent the, the finished text to the publisher, it came back to us, and Tara and I spent seven days, seven in the morning till seven at night, going through the entire text, checking the cross-references because we couldn't do that without seeing the final text. So, yes, they do drive me absolutely crazy, but I love them because they make the book that is so big much more usable and into a really integrated whole. Yeah, I, I love your point about – I do this on uh, uh, on the, the, the uh, Chances' website as well sometimes. I'll, I'll find myself – in a place thinking, why am I looking at this? Um, and it's because I've gone through about um, six or seven um, cross-references effectively that have caught my attention. Mm. Um, so I might have been looking at, uh, I don't know, uh, Zweigelt, and I've gone through Saint Laurent and I've ended up somewhere else. And yeah, it, it is, um, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's wonderful, but it's, uh, it can be sort of slightly uh, sort of addictive almost actually, can't it? Oh, it can. And, and the good thing about um, 
having a, a, an online version, which we do have on chancesrobinson.com. We currently still have the fourth edition because uh, the fifth edition won't be on the website until sometime uh, next year. But when you have the online version, it's great because you just click. You don't have to keep turning over all the pages. Even though I love a physical book, um, having that online version is, is really useful. But it, it is even more difficult to stop when you follow the links. Yes, there's probably someone being treated for uh, this addiction <laughs> somewhere, I, I suspect. Do you get to enjoy a bit of a break from the OCW now then for a while? Obviously, you've started your file already, but do you have a bit of a break? Yes, definitely. We, the editions are usually eight or nine years apart. So bearing in mind that the editing itself takes two years, uh, production a year, that's three. So there should be a good five years before we start thinking about it again. Yes. Well, that's a point to uh, take a, a breather and uh, enjoy a a glass of something, maybe, uh, which brings us neatly on to a question that um, I, I think you'll probably hate, uh, but you'll uh, almost certainly have been asked it before. Uh, what would be uh, your uh, desert island wine? You're, you're right. I have been asked. Well, I tend to get asked, generally get asked, um, what's your favourite wine? And I have a very simple answer to that, which I say is anything good, because I don't. Uh, what I love about wine is the diversity. But since you've pinned me down... Um, mm. to a desert island wine where I've only got one choice, I'd probably say a Riesling Cabinet from Germany. All right. I wasn't even sure you'd even answer that question, actually, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I, I did wonder. I did think that the Riesling might, might pop up if you did. So there we are. So I'm feeling... Uh, uh, mildly smug now, actually. Um, yes, a very, a very uh, lovely choice, and I'm uh, not uh, uh, the least bit uh, surprised. Um, Julia, it's, um, it, it's a, a, I said at the, the start, a labour of love. Uh, it's a, it's a fantastic um, publication. It really is. So, uh, thank you for, and to you and your colleagues for all the work uh, that goes into it. But thank you for uh, taking the time out to uh, talk to me here on the Drinking Hour too. You're very welcome. It's been a, a pleasure to discuss the book with you. Thank you. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Okay, let's round off as always with a selection of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame, starting with a gold medal winning field blend from Portugal. I was fortunate enough to be on the judging panel for this one. I can actually say I can remember it as well. Uh, it was a great wine, uh, although we judged blind, of course. So only found out afterwards what it was. Casa da Passarella Abanico Reserva 2021 from uh, the Dow region of Portugal, a gold with 96 points and a striking looking uh, bottle label too. Uh, we said this, broad aromatics offering ripe peach lime and floral notes leading to layers of fruit toasted bread and salted caramel on the palate the hit of sweetness is expertly balanced with acidity and oak is well integrated throughout a charming wine with wonderful purity of fruit staying in portugal for a gold medal winning tawny port that did really well 97 points for Calem, 40-year-old tawny non-vintage, assessed by an exacting panel overseen by Dercy Viana Junior MW, uh, the panel including Matthew Forster MW, 
Igor Sotrich, uh, Andrew Johnson and Kat Lomax. And they said this, a very fine boned 40 year old tawny displaying an expressive nose of toasted nut, leather, spice and Christmas cake. Pronounced fruit character with a herbal touch with coffee, caramel and licorice. Long finish of demerara sugar and toffee apple. Well, here's something unusual, intriguing and uh, delicious, frankly. I say so because, uh, once again, I was lucky enough to be uh, judging this one alongside Master Sommeliers, uh, Matteo Montone and Issa Bao, uh, the panel overseen by Alistair Cooper, MW, this time. Silvio Carter, Per Te, Reserva, 2002. Uh, an orange wine, this, from Sardinia, made with Vinaccia. Our tasting note, a beguiling mix of the sweet and the savoury with captivating scents of sweet citrus and florals, harmonising with coffee, hazelnut and dried fruit. This was only amplified in the palate through caramelised apple and a savoury complexity, creating a fine example. Well, we don't see that many wines from Cyprus. Here's a gold medal winner to look out for. Marathasa Wines, Amaranthus Yanudi. 2021. The judges, uh, Sarah Abbott, MW in charge, Eric Zwiebel, Master Sommelier, Anna Sapunju, uh, Master of Wine, and also Marianne Rodriguez, currently studying for the MW. Uh, they gave this a gold with 95 points, saying this elegant and intense. This has layers that will evolve the herbal and savory complexity. Fresh, dark bramble fruit and cherries have notes of violet and black pepper with plentiful ripe tannins, supporting high concentration, a velvety texture and a fresh palate. Finally, to Australia's McLaren Vale next. Gem Tree Wines, Ernest Allen Shiraz 2021 was a gold medal winner with 96 points. The panel overseen by Alex Hunt, MW of Berkman Wine Cellars. On the panel, our friend Freddie Bulmer. Uh, who buys for Australia for the Wine Society, uh, retired Michelin-starred chef Roger Jones, an Australia expert, as is Victoria Sharples, who's got a fabulous wine bar, and uh, Ray O'Connor, MW, of Naked Wines. And they said this, absorbingly extravagant with elegant aromas of plush black fruits and earthy peppercorns. The palate is broad and focused with silky flavours of luscious cherries, juicy plums, and a wonderful hint of savoury yeast magnificent they said and that's it my thanks to julia harding mw from the oxford companion to wine that is 50 pounds and a great christmas present for a wine lover uh, julia may not be a fan of social media but we are you can follow us at food fm radio on instagram and x the thing we used to call twitter uh, you can follow Club Analogique too, and you can take a look at my profile, if you like, Mr. Venusaurus on both of those platforms. Until next time, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Analogique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.